Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect the disconnected to a growing relationship with God. You can connect with God, and we can help. Good morning. Like Tyler said, my name is Alex and I'm one of the residents here. I'm so glad to see you guys this week. You guys braved the snow that we got and are enduring the cold weather and fall is definitely upon us. I um, was able to escape to Maine this week for a little bit of a fall break and it was really exciting. It kind of plays a little bit into what I was thinking about with John 12, which is the next stage into our series. Um, like, have you ever seen something really awe-inspiring? You know, just like, wow, I, I, like, I don't even know what to say. You're just struck by how magnificent it is, how much it grabs your attention. Um, while in Maine, my friends and I, we had this little cottage Airbnb and it was near the shore of this harbor and not too far away was this place, uh, is a group of rocks called the Giant Stairs. And they're really cool weathered rocks that kind of look like petrified wood with some layers and stuff through them. And uh, they are like kind of weathered and stacked in a way that it looks like a giant could walk out of the ocean and use them as stairs to get on land. It's a really neat feature. But what I loved most was when I, I sat on top of one of these rocks and looked down and these waves would just come crashing down onto the rocks over and over again. And it left me awestruck. Partly because waves are crazy. They're, they're strong. They're always uh, coming. You can count on, you know, one wave's uh, going to crash down on the rock next. You can see it, the swell building in the water. Um, they're relentless. They go all night, all day. And I just was like, wow, like if I was in that water, if I fell off this rock and fell in there, I would get caught in the current. I don't know what I would do. I would probably drown because it's this some powerful water. And then I also thought, you know what? What's crazy is as, as wild as these waves are, I know a God who once told these waves to stop, to, to cause them to cease, and they did. And it just blew my mind that the waves are that powerful, but there was a God that could say stop and that they did. In these moments when we see something really marvelous or magnificent or awe-inspiring that grabs our attention, whether that be like the view from a 14er, or perhaps it's seeing a newborn baby in the hospital, um, perhaps it's when you saw your spouse in that first look on your wedding day, Whatever it might be, those awe-inspiring moments where you're like, wow, there's something bigger than me going on, those are important. And they help us think bigger. Uh, They help us think maybe about God, about maybe life in general. Um, They cause us to pause, and it's important to do that. Well, we're going to kind of realize that Jesus, being in his presence, does that for us too. That when we are in his presence, we have to stop and think, wow, this is our king, this is our savior. And John 12 this morning is really going to showcase that for us in several different ways. It's kind of a neat chapter in which there are several movements throughout that showcase different postures of how to be in Jesus' presence, how to worship him. And that's what we're going to look at today. So if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and open it to John chapter 12. And then also in the back, there's some free Bibles. Um, I'd also encourage you to download the app so you can take some notes. You can get ready for this week's community um, group study guide along with that. So go ahead and download that if you haven't already. Um, But before we dive in, um, we need to look back at John 11, what uh, Chris had just covered for us, really um, looks at Jesus and when life is hard. 
when Lazarus died and, and Mary and Martha are weeping and they're unsure about how to proceed, Jesus was there. But this next chapter really pivots from that and that we see that heartbrokenness and the peace that Jesus provides and the hope. And now we see why he's worthy of honor and glory and worship. So before we read John chapter 12, let's, let's pray together and, and ask God to help us understand um, what he's saying through this. Heavenly Father, thank you for John 12 and the words um, that are in it that showcase the truth about who you are and about your son. Um, help us to realize that you are worthy of worship and that our lives can, can look like a posture of worship. Um, I just thank you for um, Jesus and the hope that he gives that he came and saved us and that we get to glorify him, that you invite us to that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. Let's start at the very beginning. There's a lot of text to cover, but it's all really good. So starting in verse one, here we go. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why hasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. All right, so Jesus is at a dinner party at his friend's house. We all love dinner parties. They're a great time. Um, it mentions that they were throwing it in his honor, though. So I don't know. We're not sure exactly what it's for. It doesn't explicitly say, but we can kind of guess, maybe especially if we pay attention to John 11 and John 12, we have Passover. And so maybe the family is celebrating that Lazarus has been brought back, that he's here for Passover, which is an incredibly important time. And so they're celebrating that, this work that Jesus has done. And who wouldn't? We're, they're all excited as family that Lazarus has returned. And so that's probably what's going on. And Jesus is there. And the dinner guests, they're serving food. They're reclining at table. And then all of a sudden, Mary decides to do something kind of crazy and kind of impulsive, kind of strange. Even for our time, we look at that as weird. But in their case, it would have been strange too. Most people at the party probably were not expecting this. It seemed reckless, without abandon. It was quite impulsive. But let's think about this here. She acknowledged who Jesus was through her actions. By taking that expensive um, perfume and anointing Jesus' feet, she was acknowledging who Jesus was. And if you think about it, really none of the disciples had done that yet. They hadn't shown such a display to acknowledge that Jesus was king, that he was the Messiah, and Mary was the one who really led the way there. I think John wants us to recall this this earlier number in John 11, when Mary is heartbroken, as Chris mentioned last week, she had a crisis of faith, that Jesus hadn't shown up in time, Lazarus had died. But now we pivot to John 12, and here Mary is, faithfully displaying with extravagance how much she loves Jesus, how much she recognizes his role as king. She does something extraordinary. You see, many of us, we often recognize when people are deserving of attention or service. 
that's something that you can kind of tell through how a person carries themselves, maybe through the experience that they have lived. Usually we can pick up on that pretty well. For me, when I think of someone who's, who just gives an air of deserving honor and, and attention and respect was my great-grandmother. Her name was Doris. She was a wonderful lady. She passed away a few years back, but I was old enough that I got a lot of memories with her still. I got to um, share life with her in different ways. Um, she was uh, in her 90s, very short, hunched over, but just a woman of God. She prayed faithfully and she loved reading the word and, and just was an example of what I want to be when I grow up. And I would often go with my grandpa uh, in the afternoons to have cookies and coffee with my great-grandma Doris. I wasn't there for the coffee, I was there for the cookies, of course. But I always enjoyed sitting at the table with her, listening to stories of when she grew up in the 30s and 40s or... Um, or what she was reading or praying about. There, there was just an air of Great Grandma Doris. She had this respect that you just owed her because you were in her presence. She exuded that, you could just tell. And I was always happy to serve her in any way. If she needed something that was across the room, I was there in an instant to get it for her because she deserved that. She, she earned this respect. Now, we can usually tell that again with people. But even more so with Jesus, Mary is leading the way with this. She knows, she can tell that Jesus is king, and she knows also what's coming. Jesus has alluded several times to this impending you know, hour that he's talking about, that his hour has come. And so Mary does this, and the disciples are probably shocked. They're like, what is going on? It was extravagant. She gets down on a knee and wipes Jesus' feet with his perfume, and, and, and it's extraordinary. So what do we do with that? Well, I think we can take from that that Jesus deserves all of us in worship, all, our whole being. The fact that she got down and, and sacrificed both maybe her dignity in that it's such a crazy act, but also the expense of the perfume, it was probably worth a year's wages. That's a lot. She saw that Jesus was worth it. Because Jesus deserves all of us in worship. He is worthy of it. John moves on in verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. I mean, what a scene this is. Can you imagine? We haven't seen such fanfare with Jesus before. And he's done miracles like you know, feeding the 5,000. He's healed people, and there's been crowds there. But this is something different. Um, a lot of times, Jesus has either maybe escaped the crowd. He's, he's pulling away because he doesn't need that attention. Or maybe he's corrected them in a teaching moment. 
But instead, he lets them do their thing. He lets them announce who he is. He's recognized that his hour has come, but also they're proclaiming the truth that Jesus is king. And no, it's not just that Jesus is a big fan of parades, that he's letting them all, you know, give them attention, all that. No, what they're doing is proclaiming that truth. That's who Jesus is. And that is what he has come to do. This Passover time is leading right up to when he's going to go to the cross. You see, the crowd's reaction to Jesus' coming into Jerusalem teaches us a couple things uh, and that are very critical to how we see Jesus. And number one is that Jesus is king, the most obvious one. The crowd recognizes it, and they're proclaiming it. Um, they're, they're saying Hosanna, which um, in Hebrew is like Hoshana, and they're asking, please save us. And so they are recognizing that Jesus has this power, this capacity. Perhaps some of them in the crowd are maybe looking more politically, but we can't help but also see that some are looking to the Messiah as well. Then we also see that he is worthy of worship, again, that he is triumphantly walking in on a cult, still in a very humble posture, but he also knows who he is and the crowd knows who he is because he is worthy of that worship. But also, do you notice the fullness of their expression of this worship? Jesus is coming in and they're going out of the city to, to bring him in. They're, the crowds are going out. They're, they have palm branches and they're waving them. They're putting them down on the ground. They're welcoming him in. It's a full body experience. It's with all people. Everyone is bringing him in. A few weeks ago, I went to Breckenridge Brewery, which is just you know, next door to Denver Seminary. Uh, so a group of um, friends walked over and uh, all kind of hung out at these picnic tables outside. And I was thinking of this kind of extravagant or like everyone celebrating kind of uh, vibe because there's this you know, kind of party outside there. Um, it was like some outdoor music that was going to happen and, and all that. So some friends had grabbed picnic tables and had set up there. And I noticed that there was a commotion up around the stage and just like different things happening. I wonder what was going on. And then some friends brought up pictures and said, look, look at the pictures we got. And I saw the Avs trophy was at Rec Brewery. And so everyone was excited because everyone wanted pictures of it and everyone wanted to see it or get as close as they could to it as possible. And why is that? Why is everyone clamoring to see this trophy? Well, because it's the Stanley Cup and everyone's excited the Avs have had this long thrilling season and had claimed victory and people felt like they were on the journey with them, that they were part of the team. They were clamoring because they were excited um, to see it. And if we're willing to get that excited about things and, and you know move and get pictures and all those things, um, how much more should we be moved and excited when Jesus moves in our lives? No, Jesus is not a trophy by any means, but he is worthy of our attention, of our praise. We want to be close to him. We want to see him. We want to welcome him in. Jesus is worthy of that kind of attention. And that's what we see in this section too. John continues in verse 20. Here we go. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew, Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, and while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven said, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light that you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. All right, so there are a lot of things going on here. It's a big chunk of text, but there's a lot to absorb. First, we need to notice that John seems to enjoy a little bit of irony when he starts this section. Because what did the Pharisees just say? They said the whole world is going to Jesus, and they're losing their minds. And then John writes that Greeks are coming to Jesus because they want to see him. They've heard about him. There's the whole world literally wants to come see Jesus because they want to know who he is. Interestingly, though, Jesus doesn't, doesn't acknowledge them directly. And instead, he kind of pivots to address the whole crowd about his time has come. Um, instead, uh, he wants this to be a teaching point. A commentary I was reading for this sermon pointed this out, that seeing Jesus redemptively depends not on wanting to do so, but on Jesus himself wanting to be seen. And this is the moment that Jesus decides to be seen. He makes it so. He declares that it's his time to show up that his hour has come. Um, now, we're in a political season, and you know voting is coming up really quick. Ads are everywhere. They're on billboards. They are on TV. They infiltrate my Hulu ads. I just want to watch TV, but then I have to watch, you know, a whole span of, you know, a minute and a half of political things. And what often frustrates us probably most about that is that we can see through a lot of the shallowness of it, of the mudslinging, of the, of the false promises that seem to go through. We're often let down by politicians who promise things, but then when they're elected, never really go through with what they said they were going to do. That's maybe contributed to our disdain amongst a host of other things. We have this doubt that, you know, their word is not going to be kept. But the thing is, King Jesus is not that way. And I think we see that exactly in this passage. That Jesus says, my time has come. And as king, I'm going to do these things. I am going to um, come into the world and save it. I'm going to be the light. And when you step into the light, when you follow me, it's going to be what you need. It's the path that you need to follow. Those kind of promises that Jesus makes, the faithfulness of his word that he has come, he's going to sacrifice himself, that's someone that we can get behind. That's a king that we can get behind. His promises are true. Now, we need to circle back and look at this verse. In 25, it says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. 
I don't know about you, this sounds like a tall order, doesn't it? Like, that that's a lot. I, I feel like I have a pretty good life. I, I like the way it is. You know, things are kind of expensive in life, and you know, I'm in school, it's not my favorite time but, but to do papers and stuff, but life's not bad, so why, why do I wanna give it up? That seems like a pretty tall ass, Jesus. I don't wanna just die to my life. But that's, that's not quite what he's asking, is it? Literally, where is it? I don't know. That's what we, we wonder, and that's what he's pausing to put up to the crowd. And what we need to see is that Jesus is asking us to reprioritize things. Because he recognizes that a life with him is not what the world expects or tells us to do. A life with Jesus requires us to put on an attitude and posture of worship. And so that means we do things differently, with a different attitude, with a different motivation. So with life and with school, maybe my motivation is to do it for God's glory and, and see where he leads it. Or maybe with your work, we instead see that perhaps our work is to be present and be Jesus to people and our coworkers. Uh, maybe in our families, we recognize now that our, our priorities, if we're dying to our life, if we're living in active service, that family is our first ministry. And that is where our priority goes. You see, Jesus' task here is really to help us reorient how we think and that the Son of Man is coming down and He's sacrificing and that is bringing us new life. And so we too, if we claim Jesus as our King, then we too reorient in the same way that He has so that we can love others and be light to the world. So um, here's the thing though. Jesus isn't calling us to do something that hasn't been done. He laid the groundwork to set this example. Uh, if there's anyone who can tell us this tall order, this tall order that doesn't make sense, that seems like, are you sure? Are you, are you being real? Like, we really need to do that? Jesus has the credibility to do it. No one else does. Jesus was true to his word, came, died, rose again. There's no one else that we can trust with that tall ask. So finishing chapter 12, starting verse 37, John writes this. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father 
has told me to say. In this, I think we hear our greatest reason for why Jesus is worthy of our worship, of our attention. Through Jesus, we see God the Father. Jesus makes that quite plain and clear to us, doesn't he? Because of who Jesus is and what he came to do, we have a better understanding about the heart of God. And I think that's amazing. For so long, maybe we, we see God as maybe, I don't know, misunderstood, or it's hard to read who he is. But here, John records a great example that actually when we see Jesus, we get a great picture of who God the Father is, of his heart and what he has sent Jesus to do. That he loves us, that he loves this world, and has provided a way to save it. But also we see the heart of God that he's clear, that Jesus is the only way, that there's no other option. That is the heart of God, is he wants to bring all people back to him, and it's through his Son. He has come to save his people and bring them into the light, to be united back to him. That is the God we worship. I want to worship a God like that. That's who Jesus is. He is our King, and he has come to save us. So after listening to all that John has written in this chapter, do you believe Jesus' message of what he said? Do you believe that Jesus is worthy of worship? Some, even who had seen Jesus perform these miracles, who had watched him cast out demons, who had healed the sick, who had multiplied food, even some of those people doubted. They weren't sure. It says that in the end of that section. So if you do believe it, do you believe that he is worthy of that worship? Which side are you on? I think Jesus makes a pretty good case. He is the king. Here are a few thoughts I have on why Jesus is worthy of our worship and what we can do about it. Now, I think because Jesus is king, this calls us to worship extravagantly, especially when we look at Mary. Mary gave a great sacrifice, both monetarily, but also in, in getting down on her knees and washing Jesus' feet with the perfume. I immediately sense some hesitation, though, when I suggest we should worship extravagantly. I think what often happens is we get in our minds, you know, we have to be um, maybe super charismatic or um, always out of our comfort zone or put on a show. But that's not what worship extravagantly has to entail or embody. Worship extravagantly looks different for each person, for each um, relationship with uh, people, with God. And that's the beautiful thing about it is that God has made us as individuals and that we get to use how we worship and use that in our own way to worship extravagantly. So what does this look like for you? Well, perhaps in this church service at this very moment, that starts with just how you sing. Maybe it's just taking one little step further than where you've been before. Maybe you don't sing, so maybe it looks like singing a little bit louder. Perhaps it's raising your arms or kneeling, just changing up the posture of how you worship. That can help maybe just connect with God in a different way. What does it look like outside of church, though? How do you worship extravagantly, like at home or at work or things like that? Um, perhaps it just looks like giving generously, giving generously to people around you, to your neighbors, to your friends and family and people you don't even know. You can worship extravagantly by journaling uh, maybe praises, thanksgivings to God. Maybe it's something you're uncomfortable doing, but maybe it's a way that you can worship extravagantly to, to acknowledge that Jesus is king. Uh, maybe it looks like trying a different prayer posture at home or you know, kneeling instead of 
um, standing or sitting or, or praying with open hands. There are lots of different ways that we can pray and, and um, use that as worship too. So I think we need to find different ways to worship extravagantly. But I also think, number two, that we need to worship with others. If we believe that Jesus is king, and we believe that he has come to do what he says to do and has accomplished that, then that, in turn, should unite the people that believe in that. And so we worship together. And we see this in the, in the whole crowd that came into Jerusalem. They were shouting Hosanna together. They were, they were declaring that Jesus has come to save them. They're excited. Um, what's important is to come on Sunday mornings. And that's because it's a guaranteed moment to worship with other people. It's a moment to declare that Jesus is king together, that he has come to do what he said he was going to do. We can also worship with your family. That's a great opportunity to teach your kids uh, about Jesus. It's a perfect opportunity to uh, minister to your family. Worship together. Maybe that looks like um, reading a psalm together before bed or you know, singing a psalm before dinner. Maybe your community group is a place that you can practice worshiping with others. One of the things that we could do is maybe, again, read a psalm together before you, you start group. Maybe you can sing a psalm, literally, like just sing a cappella. It doesn't have to be anything fancy, no instruments. Maybe that's what it looks like. Or maybe it's just sharing thanksgivings with one another about what God has done. The third thing I think is sometimes maybe the most difficult. Maybe it's the most difficult to do consistently. It's certainly not comfortable. But it's to worship as a testimony to who Jesus is. Worshiping as a testimony requires a little bit more thought and also requires, um, I don't know, just a real understanding that and belief that Jesus is who he says he is. It's, it's a taller ask. Often we think that worship is reserved for maybe the moments together or in this church space, but if we acknowledge that worship can be used as a testimony to who Jesus is, this opens up the door for a lot of cool possibilities. Um, we can have an impact on those around us. So when you go hiking with a group of people and you get to the end and you see that view, maybe audibly give glory to God about how beautiful it is, how marvelous it is, the work of his hands. Or maybe when God came through in the last minute with maybe something financial for you, provided food or something in crisis, give glory to God. Share with your neighbors the joy like God is good and he came through. Share that joy. Use it as a testimony. Even when life is hard, when you feel stuck in darkness and the things that seem to be coming, there seems to be no hope. But you can worship as a testimony to show that even when you're in midst of that darkness and that little, little sliver of hope that you have, that's what you can lean on with Jesus. And you can share that with other people, that even when things are dark, you can lean on Him. You see, if we are changed and if we believe that Jesus is who He says He is, then our worship has to reflect that. We can worship extravagantly. We can worship with others and we can worship and live it out as a testimony. So I think John 12 shows us something that we just can't deny, that Jesus is worthy, whether that be Mary or the triumphant entry, the voice from heaven declaring over Jesus that his hour will be glorified. Remember that metaphor about the kernel um, that it died and fell to the ground that Jesus used? When it died and fell to the ground, it maybe decomposes or falls into the ground, and eventually the roots will sprout out of that kernel, and new life will come out of it. And that's what Jesus did for us, so that we have new life too. He went to the cross, he rose from the dead, and now we have that available to us. And I don't know about you, 
that, that kind of sacrifice and making that freely accepted for us, that is something to praise about. That's something we should worship about. So let's transform how we worship. Let's not be the same as we walked in this morning. Let's think of new ways that we can worship our King because He is worthy. May we live out this truth that Jesus is King and He deserves the whole of us in worship. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your words um, showing us who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus gave us hope. He saved us. He is our King. He is a faithful, faithful um, Savior that He has fulfilled all that He said He was going to do and that He has given us life. That is a good King. And I want to learn how to praise you more, Lord. Help us all do that as we um, both wrap up the service, but also as we go out this week. Help us to live it out as a testimony. Help us to teach our families, our friends how to worship. Um, You are good, Lord, and you are worthy of it. Thank you for your Son and your Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.